Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and this week I'm bringing you a case that fell right out of our last one. The case of Leanne Sluder, the mother of Daniel Meyer's son, who was found dead of an apparent suicide just years before he confessed to killing Heather Bogle. And let me tell you, things do not add up. If you haven't listened to the Heather Bogle episode, go check that one out before you listen to this one so you get a feel for the depravity that Daniel Myers is capable of. Small talk is worse than talking about politics on a first date, so let's dive in. Leanne Sluter had a rough start at life. She was one of six kids, but the home was broken, and I'm talking broken. Her and her siblings were split up and put into foster care, moving from foster home to foster home and from group home to group home, but Leanne was always able to keep one familiar thing with her at all times, her sister, Lori Ann. They were the closest of the six siblings and always managed to stay together regardless of the family they were with this month. And eventually, they were both adopted by the same family. But Leanne was the black sheep. The family was nice. Her adoptive dad was even a cop. But it's awkward being the added kid. You know you're loved and they chose to love you, but you know it's different than the kids born into the house. It didn't help that Leanne was independent and free-spirited and wasn't one to stand in line. In a house run like a well-oiled machine, and there's nothing wrong with that. I love me a tight ship. But sometimes you're just trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. When it was time to move out on her own, she did. She got a job as a dog groomer, which might sound like a nightmare to some. Seriously, what dog hair is my hell on earth? But Leanne was all about the animal life. She loved it, and this was her dream job. In 1993, she met a man and fell in love. They got married and started a family, adding a baby boy into the mix, we'll call him Cody, and even started building their dream house on a plot of land in the country. It was a fairy tale, but eventually reality set in and financial troubles plagued the marriage. Their dream house didn't happen, and it turned out that her husband was also talking to other women. Ultimately, the two filed for divorce in 2000 and finalized it in 2001. But Angie was built on resilience and self-sufficiency. Her life had been a series of picking herself up when she was down, and this wasn't any different. Her and her now ex-husband co-parented well. They shared their son. He began showing signs of having special needs, and Leanne handled it like a champ, taking him to and from doctor's appointments on a regular basis and always making sure his medications were on point. She worked during the day and loved on her son until bedtime, and after bedtime, she took some time to herself, perusing Yahoo chat rooms for entertainment and some adult interaction. All single moms feel that on a soul level. I've been there, girls. You're superheroes. Seriously. Before long, Leanne met a man in one of those Yahoo chat rooms. His name was Daniel Myers. He lived in Clyde and she lived in Grand Rapids, so she would take the one-hour drive whenever she could to come and visit him. He said all the right things. She felt like she could be herself around him. He commended her for being a single mom and didn't see her son as baggage. He checked all of her boxes and seemed like Mr. Right. Before long, and I'm talking just a few months, they were expecting a baby of their own, another little boy. Daniel invited Leanne to move in with her at his trailer in Clyde, and she did. She thought this was it. This was her knight in shining armor. This was going to be her forever family, the one that she's been seeking her entire life. But the fairy tale was short-lived. It turned out that Danny is one controlling son of a bitch. He didn't move Leanne into his home to be closer to her or to spend more time with her. Danny moved her in so that he could keep a closer eye on her. 
Ironically, regardless of how closely he watched Leanne, he was out with other women on a consistent basis, and he didn't even care to hide it. I mean, what was she going to do? She gave up her place in Grand Rapids, moved her and her child into this new man's trailer, and was pregnant with his baby. She was trapped, or at least she felt like she was. Leanne fell in love with someone much different than the man she knew now. In August of 2004, Leanne went into labor. They were about to become a family of three, well, technically four, counting Leanne's son with her ex-husband. Daniel came to the hospital and went. She furthered along in the laboring process in searing pain by herself, and Danny wasn't exceptionally supportive or helpful for the time that he was there. Eventually, their little boy entered the world, we'll call him Eli, and he was perfect, but his dad had no idea because he wasn't there. But don't worry, though, he showed up a little while later with another fucking woman. Oh, hey, lady who just had my baby and lives in my trailer. Here's another chick I'm banging. Hope you don't mind if I bring her to meet her son. It's cool, right? Cool. Within a few days, Leanne was discharged from the hospital and back in the tin prison she shared with Danny. Regardless of his abuse and disrespect, she had fallen in love with an imaginary man and maybe there was some hope that their son being born might change things, but it was just a miserable shithole of despair and crushed dreams. Leanne's best friend Angie called her to set up a time where she could come and meet Eli, but that was a no-go. Danny wouldn't allow any of Leanne's friends to visit her, and absolutely no one was to meet their son. Well, except for the ladies he was banging, that was fine. Leanne returned to her dog grooming job after she was cleared to go back to work, but she needed out. Not out of the grooming business, because puppies are fucking great. She needed out of Danny, which meant she needed a more steady and reliable income. So she got a job at Whirlpool, the same exact place that Danny worked, and almost the same shift. Leanne and Danny would go into work in the afternoons, then Danny would get off at 10.30 and Leanne would get off at 11. They had a slight deviation in their shifts to make transitions less of a bitch. The factory was only three miles down the road and there was a sitter in the trailer park who was happy to watch the children of the night shift workers, so it was a really good fit. Unfortunately, Danny caught on to what Leanne was planning, so instead of letting her leave, he let her stay, and I'll explain what that means. Daniel found out that another lot in a trailer park was up for sale, so he bought that trailer and moved out. Leaving Leanne, Cody, and Eli in the original trailer, still owned by him, that way he could keep track of her and her son from just a few lots down. Leaving Leanne, Cody, and Eli in the original trailer, still owned by him, that way he could keep track of her and their son from just a few lots down. Her friends warned her that this wasn't a good idea, but it was free, and she was free from the immediate constraints of all the negative aspects of her and Danny's relationship, but still close enough to share custody and maybe, just maybe, work things out, so she went with it. But it didn't matter, Danny was still really fucking mean. Even living apart, he managed to find ways to demean Leanne and make her feel like complete garbage. Eventually, the emotional abuse turned physical when he violently grabbed her during an argument. According to Danny's daughter, he was violent and always had been. One day, when Leanne had both boys with her, Danny decided that he was going to discipline her oldest child, whom belonged to her ex. Danny took him out back and hit him hard with a wooden paddle, leaving substantial bruising. You'll remember that Cody has special needs. 
When Leanne's ex-husband saw the bruises, he was rightfully livid and immediately called CPS. And thus began a custody battle for the ages. It was Leanne's nightmare, but she also understood why her ex was fighting. I mean, she didn't even want to live there and be under the watch of her abuser turned child abuser, but he had groomed her and broken her, and she genuinely believed that he was all that she deserved. Leanne was a victim of abuse, and like many do, she sided with her abuser, blocking out the bad and only seeing the good, rationalizing the abuse because acknowledging it would mean doing something about it, and she just wasn't there yet. Things didn't get any better with Danny. For a man who was partially responsible for her losing her son, he didn't do much to fill that void for her. He continued seeing other women regularly, making each new flavor his new priority and giving Leanne just enough to hold on so he had something to occupy his time between flings. Every single time, he gave Leanne new hope and then crushed her all over again. One time when Leanne had a friend come over, literally just a friend who happened to be a male, Danny didn't skip a beat. He stormed over to the trailer and beat the ever-living shit out of him. The beating was so bad that Danny actually wound up doing jail time for it. In early January of 2009, Danny started dating someone new, and I mean, she lasted more than a week or two, so in Dannyland, she was a pretty big deal. So big of a deal that he asked Leanne if she minded if he drove Eli with him to Lexington an hour and a half away to spend the weekend with his new lady. Obviously, she said no, but no one says no to Danny. If she thought she was in charge, he was going to show her who was boss. On February 29th, 2009, Leanne and Danny both got off work from the Whirlpool factory. Danny clocked out at 10.30 p.m. like always and picked their son up from the trailer park sitter. Leanne met him at his trailer at 11.15. I have no idea why. It was Danny's weekend with their son. Maybe she just wanted to tell Eli goodnight, but she stayed for 15 minutes and then headed back to her trailer. On the 28th, Danny spent most of the day moving his girlfriend into his trailer. If he couldn't bring his son to her, he was going to bring her to his son. It was a solid, take that, Leanne. And I think she kind of did. At around 10 p.m., while he was out at Ryan's Steakhouse with his new live-in girlfriend, Leanne texted him, you win, do what's right. She spent the rest of the night on the phone with her friend Angie just talking about life. Cody's birthday party was coming up in a few days. She had an eye appointment to go to and, you know, just random shit that girlfriends talk about. She got off the phone at around 11.30 p.m. telling Angie that she'd talk to her later. And that was the last time Angie ever heard Leanne's voice. On the morning of March 1st, 2009, Leanne was scheduled to get Eli back. Danny texted her at 10.09 a.m. but got no response. At 11 a.m., he called her, but she didn't answer. And 45 minutes later, Danny says that he walked over to her trailer and knocked on the door, but again, got no answer. He says he figured she was in the shower, so he went back to his place. Why the fuck would you assume that now she's in the shower? Not at 10.09, not at 11 o'clock. At 11.45 a.m., she must be in the shower. But just 30 minutes later, two hours and six minutes since he started trying to contact her, he decides it's time to break in. If people broke into my house every time I didn't respond within a two-hour window, we might as well just take the door off and save everyone the trouble. 
Danny allegedly went back to Leanne's shed and got her spare key, opened her door, and told their now four-year-old son to sit on the couch as he headed to the back room. Why would you tell a kid to sit on their couch in their own home? Any normal four-year-old would run in like, it's Tonka time, bitch, vroom, vroom. But no, Danny explicitly tells him to sit on the couch. Danny gets to the back bedroom where he sees Leanne laying on her side and tells her to get out of bed. Bitch, I don't know who you think you are, but you're not coming up into my house and telling me to wake the fuck up. It's your weekend. I'm sleeping in. Suck it. But Leanne was not sleeping. Danny says he noticed that her eyes are open partway and are glossed over and that the pigment of her face and neck are off. He then says he touched her ankle and realized she was cold, then grabbed her phone, which is charging on the bed and called 911. Never mind the rifle laying beside her that she's cradling. I have a copy of this 911 call and let me read it to you. The dispatcher does the whole what's your emergency deal and Danny says, yes, ma'am. Um, I brought my son home to his mom's because we have the weekend deal and I was here like an hour ago and she didn't answer the door and I'm like, well, maybe she's in the shower. So I went back home. Well, I have a key to get in her home and I came in and she, 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 she's dead. I need someone to come out here ASAP. The dispatcher asks for his address and he gives it to them. She then asks him if the child is there and he says, yes, he's here. He's with me. I dropped him off. He's four. So I'm going to make arrangements for somebody to come get him. We learned about everything except for what he ate for breakfast before he got to the she's dead part. And this is where things get interesting. I got a copy of the police report, case file, coroner's report, crime scene photos, you name it. And this is a Thomas Brown level shit show, so buckle the fuck up. First things first. Leanne allegedly shot herself with a 22 caliber rifle in the chest. The trajectory was from the upper middle of her chest. It pierced through the right ventricle of her heart, her diaphragm, the left lobe of her liver, stomach and spleen, and exited out of her mid-lower back. Leanne was found on her side, which means she would have been holding the gun almost parallel to her face when she pulled the trigger backwards. Naturally, the kickback of the gun would force it towards the headboard and it would likely fall to the ground, but it didn't. The gun was found cradled between her arms and legs with the barrel facing her chin. It was still stuck to her shirt from the blowback of blood into the barrel. That barrel never left contact with the wound. It literally dried where it shot from point blank range. This chest wound would not have been instantaneously lethal, so she would have bled profusely, choking on blood due to the damage to her diaphragm and stomach. The gurgle sound made when this happens is sometimes referred to as the death siren by first responders because it rarely ends well. This wound would pour blood being so close to the heart ventricle that it penetrated. Also note that anyone who gets shot generally touches the wound, whether they do it on purpose or not. You grasp what hurts, unless you're fucking Iron Man and you just lay there and take it like the superhuman you are. But that's not what this scene looked like at all. There was absolutely no blood. Not on the blankets, not on the mattress, no spatter in front of or behind her. Nothing. The report notes a small pool of blood that was caught in her bra and a smudge, and I quote, smudge of blood on her left thumb, and that's it. And if you're wondering if they tested that smudge, the answer is no. Leanne was shot point blank in the fucking heart, and that's all the blood there was. Which sounds to me like her blood wasn't pumping when she died. I consulted 
two prior law enforcement officers who said the same thing. But if she was dead before she was shot, who did it and how? I was looking at the crime scene photos, and while she had a really puffy mattress topper underneath the blanket she was laying on top of, she wasn't laying on any pillows. Where the fuck were the pillows? I didn't see them in any crime scene photos. Absolutely zero, none, no pillows. I mean, in the Chris Watts case, the bedding was one of the first things officers noticed was off, but not a single person asked questions about Leanne's. You know what pillows are used for in terms of crime? Smothering someone or silencing a gun. In this case, I believe it may have been both. They live in a parking lot full of tin cans within arm's reach of one another. I called Sandusky Records and had them search all the calls that came in on March 1st, 2009, between midnight and 12.17 p.m. when Danny used Leanne's phone to call 911. And not a single soul made a call about a gunshot, not even a firework or a loud noise. No calls came in about the gunshot that killed Leanne in a fucking trailer park. Furthermore, while we know there was an absence of pillows, there was also an absence of bullets and bullet holes. They found a shell casing beside her on the bed, one on her dresser, and one in the gun, meaning that at some point that gun had been shot three fucking times. But she had one gunshot wound and that trailer had zero bullet holes in it. Riddle me that, Batman. Did anyone ever search for those missing bullets? Nope, just thought it was weird and carried on. Now, let's get to the gun itself. Instead of kicking backwards and falling onto the ground, it defied all laws of physics and did a full rainbow forward and went underneath her arms and legs as she laid on her side, never once leaving contact with her wound. A deputy told Leanne's sister, Lori, that the EMTs must have moved it. But the police report specifically says that they touched nothing. Except for the blanket that Leanne had pulled halfway up her body before allegedly killing herself. EMTs said that they moved it to touch her ankle, meaning her ankle wasn't exposed to touch in the first place. Danny stated that he touched her ankle and it was cold, so did he move her blanket to feel her ankle before ever seeing her glossy eyes or off pigmentation? I think she's dead, let me touch her ankle. Because that's normal. Leanne was facing the wall of her trailer. Her feet were facing the door. So for Danny to say he walked in and was immediately like, oh my gosh, her eyes are glossy and she's in liver mortis is a hard pass. The butt of the gun is the most noticeable thing you see when you walk into the room and look at Leanne. Her eyes were hardly open and the pigmentation on her face and neck were off. But the positioning of her hands would have blocked anyone's immediate view of that. I called a deputy who worked on the case when it was reopened after Danny was convicted of Heather Bogle's murder, and he told me that she could have moved it after she shot herself, since she wouldn't have died immediately. Okay, sure, she shot herself, then decided to hug the weapon, making sure it never left contact with her shirt. That makes sense. Absolutely no gunshot residue tests were ever done. Not on Leanne, not on Danny, not on his new living girlfriend. Zero total people were tested for gunshot residue. I mean, they bagged her hands before sending her off for an autopsy, but no one checked hers or anyone else's hands for GSR because fuck protocol. To continue on with a shit show of a scene, there were freshly clipped coupons for pull-ups on her kitchen counter. Who clips coupons before killing themselves? 
And you'll remember that her phone was charging on her bed. Who charges their phone to die? And with all that contact Danny tried to make with Leanne in those two hours and six minutes, where was his phone when he found her body? Don't tell me that the one time he didn't have it was when he went over to her trailer and just so happened to find her dead. What a coincidence. Leanne was found fully clothed with a ton of white cat hair on her shirt. She had fries and a burger in her stomach. So did she ever go to bed the night before? If she woke up on the morning of the first, she didn't eat any breakfast. Were there any pajamas on the floor or in the top of the hamper? I don't know. No one checked. Her autopsy showed no rigor mortis, so Leanne hadn't been dead for long, maybe an hour or two. Interesting. Any chance that 11 o'clock trip to her trailer where he mysteriously decides she must be in the shower was just to explain if anyone saw him leaving? Because neighbors weren't convinced this was a suicide either. Sure, Danny was a complete shitbag, but as far as everything and everyone else in her life goes, she was happy. When the sheriff's department initially spoke to Danny, he made sure to mention that Leanne was having issues with her ex-husband over custody and taxes. He forgot to mention that those custody issues were because he beat her son. He also failed to mention the argument he and Leanne were in over his new girlfriend who just happened to move in the day before the mother of his child was found dead by him. Danny went on to tell police about what he had done on the 29th, the day before, saying him and his girlfriend visited his mother's grave and then they went to Ryan's steakhouse and got home a little before 10.30 p.m. One, he forgot to mention the whole moving his new girlfriend of two months in. Two, that accounts for like an eighth of the day. And three, why the fuck are we talking about the 29th? Leanne's death was ruled a suicide E fucking immediately. Like within three days, her body was released for burial. Her funeral was held on March 6th, and Danny had the balls to show up. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant to say that Danny had the balls to show up with his girlfriend. He's two for two now. Give birth, he brings a girlfriend. Have a funeral, he brings a girlfriend. And that was the end of it for Leanne. No one cared. No one took a second look or even a first look, if you ask me. They just found a dead woman and took the word of a guy with a history of violence. In the years following Leanne's death, Danny got weird AF. On more than one occasion, he tried getting her best friend Angie to meet up with him. He even prepared flowers for all of the women in Leanne's life every Mother's Day and called them to come pick them up. This included Angie and Leanne's mom. Angie wasn't about to touch him with a 10-foot pole, and Leanne and her mother weren't close. Seriously, her parents would visit the area and not call or even try to see either of their grandsons. Danny's brother Stephen tried getting Leanne's sister Lori to meet up with him several times last year, but she 100% was uncomfortable with that idea. He did, however, tell her that Danny told him three different stories about what happened to Leanne that day. I gave him a call and left a message, but he did not return it. Danny continued trying to contact Angie throughout the years, and around the time Heather Bogle died, he told her that he was doing some remodeling of his trailer so that he could do entertaining and that it was going to be great. We later learned that he remodeled because when he brutally beat and shot Heather Bogle, her blood had seeped into his subfloor. 
Once Leanne's case was reopened after Danny confessed to Heather's murder in 2019, Danny's sister magically presented this alleged suicide note written to Danny from Leanne. It reads, Danny, you know you can't play with people, hearts, and minds for you and don't expect them to reach a breaking point. You can tell already this has a lot of errors. I have loved you unconditionally without waiver and all you ever did was use me as a bank. Kick me to the side when the next best thing came along. And when that didn't work, then I was good enough for you. I was the one that was always there for you without question. Even when you said some of the meanest things. It just beat me down even more each time you say I'm so negative, but that's because you beat me down so far that I just felt like an empty shell inside. No one really knows how it was for me because I put on a happy face at work, so they all thought I was happy, happy, joy, joy, Leanne. But all I ever wanted was to just die so the hurt would stop. Well, you win. Your obligation is over. Now you can move on with your life without me as baggage. I mean, all you ever wanted was Eli anyways. So now no baggage and the money train because you know you get everything. I just hope you tell Ethan what a good person I was and I hope he grows up to be a good man who knows how to treat a woman with respect and love. All my love and devotion always, Leanne, your hummingbird. And at the top of the margin, she, and I use the term she lightly, added, all I ever wanted was for you to love me back. I'm sorry, where the fuck was this letter in the years before? Danny's sister said she found it in his nightstand, but certainly if Leanne had left a suicide note, he'd be waving that thing around like a fucking flag to prove that he had nothing to do with it. They closed her case after noting that the suicide note had a crease in it that matched the crease in a notebook photographed on Heather's kitchen counter in her crime scene photos. <gasps> You're saying Danny had access to a notebook in a trailer that he owned? I'm shook. No, I'm not. I was lying. I am not shook. I am not shocked. I am the equivalent of underwhelmed and unimpressed. Especially since they closed the case saying that that letter basically proved it was a suicide. Because fuck evidence. I compare the letter and a note written by Leanne, and the handwriting is drastically different. Most noticeably, Leanne dotted all of her eyes with circles. In the suicide note, there wasn't a circle in sight. And why is she calling herself a money train? They lived separately and had the same fucking job. Not to mention, she paid child support, so technically she made less. The letter sets up the story of how she's so happy at work, so when and if they ask around if Leah seems suicidal, they'd expect everyone to say no. Smart, but no one asked. The term, you win, was in the letter and in the text she sent him the night before she died, but both had different meanings. The one in the letter is, you win, I'm dead. But in the text, she said, you win, do what's right. I wonder who in the world would know what she had texted him the night before. Huh. She talks a lot in the present tense, then throws in the past tense. Quote, unquote, no one ever knows how it was for me. All in all, the letter seems like complete shit and is really fucking convenient. One of the detectives who worked on the case told me that not enough was done at the initial scene. But when I asked about why there was a lack of blood at the scene, there was no answer. When I asked about the barrel of the gun being stuck to her shirt from the blowback, he didn't recall. When I told him that Stephen, Danny's brother, had been trying to contact Lorianne about three different versions of what Danny says happened to Leanne that morning, he told me that Daniel was a pathological liar. So the evidence doesn't matter and neither do the statements made by the perpetrator to his brother. Got it. 
I mean, Danny was a pathological liar when they took his word that Leanne killed herself, and now we're not to care what he tells his own brother because he's a pathological liar. This is where we're at. When I asked where the bullet holes were, he cut me off and told me it was great meeting me, but that he had to go to another call. However, I checked the dispatch record, which is constantly updated to the general public in Sandusky, and a call had not gone out in over an hour. Public resources can be a real bitch. So yeah, it was great meeting him. Leanne's suicide is a closed case. Regardless of the evidence, regardless of the lack of evidence, regardless of the lack of scene work, and regardless of the fact that handfuls of women came forward about Danny violently forcing himself on them after he admitting to killing a co-worker. You know who else was a co-worker? Leanne Sluter. Leanne deserves the justice that it seems she's being refused. Her family has these reports that contradict themselves. They have these crime scene photos that make no sense. And a copy of a suicide note that didn't show up until almost a decade after she died. Found miraculously by the sister of the man who friends, family, and even neighbors feel may have been responsible for Leanne's death. If anything happens with this case, I will 100% update you as always. For all photographs pertaining to this case, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for the blooper reel. If you like your podcast ad-free, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just $2 a month, you'll never have to listen to an ad again. If four episodes just aren't enough for $5 a month, you get an extra bonus episode exclusive only to Patreon members on the first Monday of every month. So instead of four episodes, you get five. I'll be bringing you another case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. shit sorry i thought i was gonna add something i'm gonna read that one more time just in case it didn't sound right shit fuck shit all right bear with me for a second